international horror and genre films. I'm Akifi Jr. And with me I have... Astroslav, aka John Patterson. Alright, the theme for this week is Atrocity of Man. One of them, Kanoa, A Shameful Memory, is an unconventional political horror film, while the other, In the Glass Cage, is a disturbing tale surrounding a Nazi war criminal. So let's start off with Kanoa, A Shameful Memory. So John, take it away with the production information. Okay. This film was made in 1976, is directed by Felipe Casals, and it has cinematographer by Alex Phillips Jr. And uh, that's all I want to give on this one. All right, sounds good. So the synopsis for this film, thanks to Wikipedia, goes as follows. The film is a dramatic reenactment of real-life events that took place in 1968 in a small village of San Miguel Canoa in Puebla, Mexico. A group of five young employees of the University of Puebla intended to spend the night en route to hike up La Melinche. The group was viciously set by villagers who had been manipulated by the local right-wing priest to believe them to be communist revolutionaries and deserved lynching. The film is shot in a documentary style and examines a pervasive atmosphere of repression in the country following widespread protests over the government spending in the 1968 Summer Olympics. This led to the massacre of hundreds of protesters in Mexico City. Okay, so um, as mentioned, this film is based off San Miguel Canoa massacre, um, and but this is also just it's just a part of a bigger political issue that was happening in Mexico, and I guess you can call this massacre as a stepping stone to the Loco massacre which is sometimes referred to as a day in Mexico we'll never forget. And this happened October 2nd. So this is just about two weeks after um, what this film is talking about. So here's just a quick little synopsis of the Latte Local Massacre. Um, thanks again to Wikipedia. So following a summer of increasingly large demonstrations protesting against the 1968 Olympics held in Mexico City, the Mexican armed forces opened fire on unarmed civilians, killing an undetermined number in the hundreds. It occurred in the Plaza de los Tres Culturas in La Teloco section of Mexico City. The events were considered part of the Mexican Dirty War when the U.S.-backed PRI government violently repressed political and social opposition. The massacre occurred 10 days before the opening ceremony of the Olympics, which were carried out normally. This film, it, um, it's told in a non-linear fashion, but just for the sake of the podcast, I'm going to give you the important dates that it covers, and then we can officially start. We get September 8th, which is um during Mass, and the priest is just warning the village um, that something bad is going to happen in the near future. He's saying that count the communists are going to arrive and put a black and red flag up in the church. And then the meat of the film, I'm sorry, ah, the meat of the film is told September 14th. And then we get September 15th at dawn where the newspapers gets a call about what happened the night prior. September 16th is the funeral for the victims. September 17th is the funeral, but for the Kanoa residents, September 19th, we start to see the survivors speaking up against the injustice as the newspaper framed the incident, saying that the victims were communists. And then September 29th, um, the priest is still in power while the whole town is on trial. Uh, Okay, so I'm really excited to start this one. This is like just easily one of my favorite movies of all time. I think I've probably seen it like four times, including this watch. And I honestly just watched this like a year and a half ago for the first time. So, um, yeah, I just, I think this is just such an important piece of Mexican cinema and honestly just an important piece of cinema because it just, it does something so damn well, but, um, you'll get more of that. Um, so John, uh, this is, I believe your first time. Um, I want to hear your thoughts. Like, what did you think of this? Okay. First time thoughts, uh, watching it. I wasn't entirely prepared for the, how documentary aspect it was going to be for its, uh, running duration. When you have the one guy who keeps turning to the camera and kind of filling you in, especially at the beginning, he's frequently there telling you about like, hey, 
this is what's going on in this town. I like that they set that up with, uh, you know, the exact climate, the political climate, like the economic climate of the area. Like it gives you the context you would need to understand why something like this would happen. And I think that's really important. And once the students, it's not students, once the, uh, uh, the people from the university get to the town, when they get stranded there, it turns into straight up a political horror movie, basically. And it is, can be unbearably tense and just overwhelming at times, I would say. And I, I really liked it a lot, honestly, in ways it reminded me of stuff like, uh, Battle for Algiers, other types of, uh, like documentary style snapshots in times of moments of like political, political and like social turmoil. And it also reminded me of like, uh, it's that Ty West movie where they kind of did Jonestown, but it was technically not Jonestown. What is it called? It is called, uh, Sacrament. Yes. The Sacrament. Oh, Parts it? of it reminded me of the Sacrament. Yeah. And that could have been because of the big old, mm-hmm. uh, intercom system that they can just yell at the town over. But also, like, that priest just, like, radiates that kind of energy. Big sunglasses and all, I guess. But, like, he he doesn't have to say a word, and you can tell he's in charge. Like, that's the sort of, like, terrifying control over people that he has. Yeah, he totally feels like a cult leader. Like, just, like, um, that's one of my points. I noticed um, when he talks, like, it's like, everything is good for the pueblo, you know? Like, it's good for us, good for us. It's not, like, for him, you know, like... I don't know, it's just... Yeah, because it's never just... It's scary. Yeah, it's never just us. The only people who directly refer to, like, what he's doing or what he's done is, like, while they're hunting these people down and they're letting people know what they need to do and they'll be like, no, I don't think so. And they'll be like, well, don't you remember how you got a telephone line put in? Don't you remember Mm -hmm. how the second floor got built? Don't forget who you owe for this. And you're like, man... He doesn't even have to do this. He's got other people to do it for him. Yeah, and um, they even like so like they even say that like he would um that the priest would grab like people, um just random not random people but like he he had a select few from there that like he helped out a lot and they basically turned into like his minions in a way you know. Yeah, and like when it gives you what what did they say at the beginning? Like people had started illegally selling wood basically to make money, and it's just like oh, you know yeah. like. This town's not doing so hot. The one thing that's making it better is also just happens to be a total bastard. You know what I mean? Yeah, this this fool's <laughs> um yeah, he's an asshole. Um so this priest, it actually I'm gonna kind of bring this back into the descent. It um it reminds he reminds me a lot of Paul Schaefer from the Wolf House. Yeah. Because um yeah, think about it, like so like the priest they, they mentioned that the priest fled um he fled Puebla after accounts of abuses, which they never really go into. But um, but then he creates this community, and um, he abuses the shit out of his power, you know? And then, like, he ends up just... He finds a way to just take over this small little town by, um, like, he he's appointing the mayor, the, the councilman, the judges, and, like, he's in charge of the water, the electricity, and the gas. But it's like, he's a priest, you know what I mean? Like, so just just seeing how he was able to evolve this small town into, like, and like, like in in the way of like Jim Jones and stuff, like and I don't know, like it's just fucking scary how they how they did that, how he was able to do that. Yeah, and you'll notice when like the uh, what are they the end like the government troops or whoever who show up when they show up, like they're immediately questioning the people who are supposed to like handle this sort of stuff, and they're like, "What are you doing? What the mm-hmm. what the hell are you doing while this is going?" On? They're like, "Nothing I could do." And nobody thinks to talk about the yeah. priest because the only people that Trump understand, yeah. 
And the only people who understand the priest's actual power is the people who live in the town. Like, that's why they weren't like, what was the priest up to? Because they're like, why would you? Yeah. Oh, uh, one thing I did want to mention while we're talking about the priest, though. I think one of the most effective shots in this entire film is after they've been captured and they're being beaten and they're being dragged to the square, basically. When he looks up for mm-hmm. a moment and sees the, pre- the priest standing in the, in the gateway of the church with like all the fire mm-hmm. around them from the yeah, people holding cool. torches, and then he passes out, yeah, that's a perfect shot right there. That is one of my favorite shots right there. Oh my god, yes! It like it just it shows just the amount of power that this priest has, that the that the church has, and like just religion. You know, like oh my god, like it goes into all these like there's just so many layers with like <laughs> like dude, like so like Mexico is obviously like a really like religious place. You know, like you know what I mean? Like they're all into Catholicism, Catholicism, which is you know it's, it's chill. But like it just it shows just how strong religion is over Mexico, how strong this priest is over this um like town in just one single frame and then like the shadows and stuff like this such a villainous shot and i'm like oh my god this is so like fuck man and like props to the restoration or whoever did the work on this i don't know who did the the actual work on how this film looks now but it looks gorgeous and sometimes films with like large crowd scenes or lots of fire can like make the the darkness around them look kind of washed out or you know like a little pixely or something like that Mm -hmm. but uh no it's the use of like the edge of the darkness in a lot of the shots like uh Mm -hmm. that one shot we were just talking about and when they're they have that one guy and they have him like right before he gets rescued basically where he's up against that like it's not a jail it looks like an old like colonial turret almost you know like it's a stone building with a metal gate yeah yeah and like just it's just a mass of people him this building and then just like darkness all around them yes but not in an unrealistic way like not in a fairy tale way but like in the way where it's like that reminds you that this is a rural community the lights only go so far there's only so far you can see it because mm-hmm. it's just too damn dark. And it's just like, I don't know. They managed to make it seem stylized without being stylized, if that makes sense. Like it feels stylized, but at the same time, it's just reality, basically. And that plays back into even when it's not in full documentary mode, it still feels that way. Mm-hmm. I want to like shift over that really quick. So like, I don't know. So if you look like on IMDb, if you look on um, Letterboxd, like it doesn't necessarily say that this is a horror film. This is why I call it an unconventional horror film because it's very artistic and it's very um like that that first like I think it's like the first half an hour that's all like documentary style. It it, it has such an artful like tone to it. And then from there like you just you get that like the horror just fucking seeps out of nowhere. And I don't know, I just I really love how the director uses genre to tell its story, you know what I mean? Like even just like so we're gonna show um like in the beginning of the film, like I said, this is non-linear. It starts off with a handheld camera, you know, and like of the aftermath of what happened. And this reminded me so much of a Texas Chainsaw Massacre of the intro yeah. where it's just like that um, black and white. Like all you hear is the film reels and you see the death, the massacre that happened and like chaos. You don't really know what's going on, but you know something horrible happened. And I don't know, it was just done so well. And just from there too, like the tension was up, like from the beginning, I was like, holy shit, like what the hell is going to happen here? Like um yeah hold on i have more to say but go ahead (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, the it really does come out of nowhere because um when they're showing the people from the university you know like preparing for the trip you're like okay it's a trip but you mentioned how it uses the horror genre and i think that's right like Mm -hmm. uh 
Think about any slasher or torture porn film where someone travels. What happens? At the beginning, they're excited. We're traveling. We're going to a new place. Well, you know, Mm -hmm. movies that follow that plot line. It feels like that type of movie when that starts happening because you already know something terrible is going to happen when they get there. You're aware that that's going to happen. But then from time to time, they'll just cut back to the town and you'll hear more about it and you'll be like, oh, no shit's really fucked over here and then it'll cut back to them and they're like hey Mm -hmm. we got a spot on the bus hell yeah storm's coming we need to get going and you're like how fitting that a storm would come today (laughs) great and then once Mm -hmm. they hit the town and they're stranded and they start getting turned down places to stay you know you immediately get the unwelcome outsider vibe that you get in you know like full car or you know like a torture like a one of the weird xenophobic torture porn, torture porn films from like the mid two thousands. You know what I'm talking about. You watched one the other day. What was it called the Borderlands? Mm-hmm. Fuck that movie. Anyway, um, and Borderland. Yeah, yeah. fuck that horrible movie. piece of shit. <laughs> but you get yeah. that feeling like they're they they they're not even aware how bad things can get here, and so they just you know do mm-hmm. whatever to pass the time. And what they don't know is like these little things they're doing to pass the time people are taking the signs of disrespect and people are seeing them as they're doing something yes. and there's somewhere they shouldn't be. Why are these people here? And they're already being whipped into the frenzy by the priest. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it's like, it's like the buildup of a horror film to that point, like absolutely structured the same way, paced the same way. And you're right. It, mm-hmm. it, it, it just leads out of that documentary stuff. And I don't think it would have been as effective without the documentary stuff because that context lets you know, hey, things are bad and they're going to get worse. Yeah. I mean, like even the guy that talks straight at the camera, like he says, he's like, like he basically says, yeah, the priest has been saying that communists are going to arrive, put up that black and red flag up in the church. And like, so like you already know that these people are getting all jumpy. They're getting like, just getting very, um, just like jumpy really. And it's just, I will forever defend this movie. It's a horror film because like <laughs> just the situation alone, it's five people trapped in a house with um something that wants to kill him i mean that's exactly what you said that's a slasher that's a creature feature you know what i mean like mm-hmm. it's a home invasion film in a way like it's this is a horror film <laughs> and i'll defend that to death yeah and... on my tombstone <laughs> i'll make sure it gets there <laughs> if if I if, if i somehow manage to last longer than you <laughs> with my litany of health problems i'll make sure it goes there Kanoa is a horror film. Mikey P. Jr. That's all I mean. Right. <laughs> and when they finally do find a place, they find a guy who's just, you know, he's not fully in tune with the town. You know? Like, he's aware mm-hmm. of what's going on, but he's like, nah, the priest sucks. These people are crazy. It's whatever, mm-hmm. though. Gotta feed my family. And Yeah, like he does what he have to do. Yeah, and that's where the film really starts, I think, to hit its major, major stride. Because I don't think I've seen mm-hmm. a movie really bash together that documentary stuff with that horror movie tension like they do here. Because the whole time mm-hmm. this is happening, it will cut to the town and what they're doing. And they are just whipping the entire population into a frenzy. And yes. they're, they're yelling yeah. over these loudspeakers like they would at, you know, like Jonestown or, you know, any other sort of dictatorship or something. And they're yelling mm-hmm. in a dialect that the university people cannot understand. And how's that pronounced again, Mikey? I believe it was Natual. Let me uh, 
put it for everyone else because I know I just let me see. Nawalto, there you go. My yeah. Bad. I'm sorry, you guys. But they're yelling they're yelling in this dialect over this. So the students are like, hey, what's she saying? And the guy's like, Oh, it's not important. Don't worry. It's not about us. Don't worry. But and the important thing too oh. is it's not even subtitles for us, for the viewers. So we have no idea what's going on. Yeah, the only time you can seem to understand what they're saying is when you see them together. When you're in a scene with the university people, they won't tell you what they're yelling. Like you just hear mm-hmm. yelling and you just know someone sounds very upset and something is going wrong. And then like as they're ju- they're just talking about their lives and all this stuff with this guy in the shed and then it cuts to like the people going there's communists here and they're going to raise this flag and they're going to burn uh St. Michael. But it was St. Michael, correct? Yes. And the, I'm honestly, I have no idea. But was it? Okay. Yeah, it, it is. Um, if I'm wrong, send me angry letters. I'm pretty sure I'm right, though. Um, <laughs> but so they're just there chilling, just getting ready to sleep. And all of this is going wrong. And you this it's like... Uh, you guys have no idea. It's like Eisen, it's Eisenstein's montage technique used to such chilling efficiency that just makes you know and that these two groups are going to meet. Because they're cross-cutting these, you know, mm-hmm. disconnected images, and you know what's going to happen, and everything that's led to this point is just the tension at this point becomes almost unbearable. This, this is a very, actually a very difficult sequence to watch. I thought. Yeah, and and may I add, um, once so the once the victims is how they're referred to in the film, once they go into this this guy's house, like there's still an hour left in the film. I I, I had to check. There was still a whole hour left, and up until like the very last couple minutes, like that tension is held amazingly like and it's and it's for how you're saying it's because of the the cross-cutting and scenes and like you start to see the um this lynch mob is getting and like how each side is basically yeah because the university people are just trying to get to the mountain to climb it that's all they care about that's all they know yeah, about like, they wouldn't even be there if it wasn't for the rain <laughs> you know yeah and the only reason that they ended up stuck there is because they didn't wait what was it 30 minutes for the next bus because they couldn't sit on top of the bus anymore right yeah, because exactly. the storm was coming. But if they had waited thirty minutes and they had to gotten on the next bus and gotten inside, they would have been. They wouldn't. This never would have happened. And it's and it's yeah. one of those things where, like, because yeah. this is actually based off something that happened. Like sometimes seeing the way things line up to make terrible events happen is just it's staggering. Like the the level of basically twists of fate that require something like this to occur, mm-hmm. and you just know they're doomed, and it it doesn't help. It does not help anything, and it's massively upsetting. Oh, yes, yes. Um, I do want to talk about the microphone um, just really quick. Like, there's a lot of emphasis on it, and like how you mentioned, like, we see it a lot in other films, and it's just there's so much powerful imagery with it. And I, I, and I was thinking about this, too. I was like, so, like, they use this microphone, and they essentially use it for, like, small-town gossip. Because remember the guy said, like, yeah, like, people will just get on the microphone and start talking um and start saying shit about other people in this town, basically. And then they'll, like, then they'll respond by going on the microphone and whatnot. So this microphone, it's used for, like, this gossip. But it's also, in the end, it's just, it's a tool for the priest's, like, political agenda. You know what I mean? And just, again, there's just a lot of power into this. Because, like, I'm thinking about this time. This is, what, 76 by this point? So, um, so remember what I was talking about earlier. In real life, there's all these protests going on in Mexico. You know what I mean? So, if we're considering the time frame of when this film was happening, like it's essentially saying that there's power in your voice, and it depends on how you use it. So, like in this rural town, they used it for, I guess you can say, evil. You know what I mean? Like 
at the same time, you can use your voice to protest against the government to, you know what I mean? Like that, that's what I'm trying to get to is just how you use it. And because again, the priest uses his voice for his own good and he doesn't care to use his power. Yeah. And actually, if you're on this point, let me push this a little bit further too, because it works out actually really well with the film. Now, now that you're talking about this, one of my favorite things is when you say something, I'm like, Oh, I'm dumb. (laughs) It starts from the priest's voice and the priest's voice is not loud, measured, sounds, you know, Mm -hmm. like a rational, normal guy. And then the power goes to the town when they start yelling over the, uh, over the uh, loudspeaker about communists and, you know, how the university people were going to come and burn the church and all that. Now, the thing is, at that point, it's no longer about the priest has said the words that made the, the, the yelling happen. He doesn't have mm-hmm. to say anything else. He doesn't say anything else, really, during this event. And then when they get to the uh, university people and they're all yelling at them, so they're all one voice at this point like a loudspeaker, but just a mass of people. So they drown out the protests from the university people because it doesn't matter. No one believes them. They're louder. Mm -hmm. They're more insistent. So they win. Like, that's crazy. You actually brought something up too that I um, forgot. The priest only shows up like a handful of times in this movie. And it reminds me a lot of Science of the Lamb with uh, like um, Anthony Hopkins as um, uh, Hannibal. Because he only comes out, what, 15 minutes out of this two-hour movie? And that's essentially what happens with this priest. He only comes out, like, 15 minutes, 20 minutes out of the whole film. But his presence is felt throughout the whole thing. And you and you see his his manipulation and his power that he has over this rural town. And it just, that's, it's just fucking scary how much of a grip he has over these people. Like, and how he created this mob with essentially just a few words. You know what's really scary about the priest is when they break into the house finally you know it's a mob of people it's a it's it's not a sturdy house they smash the door and they kill the owner in an incredibly Mm. shocking moment of violence because i wasn't sure that this was gonna get bloody or not at this point you know because i i hadn't Mm -hmm. seen it i didn't know how far it was gonna go but he just gets hit in the back of the neck with a hatchet but I'll get back to that in a second. But what's really scary mm-hmm. about the priest is they come to the university people and then it cuts to the future, like a couple days later, maybe. And it's the priest being mm-hmm. interviewed and he's just talking about he had nothing to do with it. He woke up. People were yelling, saying they were going to kill the communists. And he said that he didn't feel well. So he went back to sleep straight faced, no emotion, <laughs> yeah. nothing. Just him walking around a field talking for a little bit. And he just bit. walks away. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's... Oh, my God. Yeah, there's... Man, there's just something around... Just the way how... Let me find out his name really quick. Enrique Lucero. Man, he does such a good drive, job portraying this um, this priest in such a like cold and heartless way. And he's like, well, that's not my fault. It happened, it happened type of deal. And again, like how you mentioned, like this goes back to like the artfulness of it. Which is why I really like this because it's, it's a heart... It's like an art house film. It's a political horror, and, like, it's just, like, I don't know. I haven't seen anything that was able to fuse, like, all these different um, parts that you wouldn't really imagine, you know? Yeah, and on to your point on it, and you, you, you've you mentioned a couple times it's art house, but this isn't the type of movie that's art house, and you watch it, and you go, ha-ha, fancy film. No, it's mm-hmm. just incredibly well-constructed. It, it takes, you know, like, mm-hmm. 
it takes its experiments with its uh, form basically and mixing the documentary and the other stuff. It's, it's an art house film, but it's not one that you're going to sit down and you're going to feel like you're being talked to by someone who thinks they're smarter than you. It's a very down to earth film is I guess what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. And this is this is a random no, thought yeah, I actually had while watching it, but while we're on the topic of art house, every time I saw the priest, he's got this this face where like it matches his outfit. I don't know how he's got a he's got a no he's got a priest face. It's shaped like the 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 out the not costume that's not the the uniform he wears for it. It's like mm-hmm. it's long, it's flowing, and like it's got those like sharp delineated angles on his face where it's like looks like he's almost carved out of stone mm-hmm. at times and he's got those glasses on and he looks like honestly like a protagonist in like a French new wave film just in the middle of all these other people he looks visibly different than everyone else in the movie and th- I, I don't yeah, know if they're trying to time. play up to like um, class like even, stuff there oh, I don't know if they're trying to play like class stuff there because they're like okay we're gonna get this priest and he's He's very handsome, and then everyone else just looks like a normal person, but he looks movie star handsome. You know what I mean? It's yes. strange. Mm-hmm. And um, I do think I I do think that's a thing because they um they go out of their way to like maybe there's like a good five minutes of the film where they basically show this rural town how like because they mentioned that like all the men, the majority of them don't finish school because um they have to go work you know and support like and help their families. And the only ones that do go to school um, are usually the rich families. But what they do is they send their kids to the to the main city. You know, like they don't normally finish their schooling at this rural um, town. And that has a lot to do with what you mentioned about like how um, just like the classism of it, I guess you can say. Yeah, because there in some places there still is like there's a for a long, long time, there was a level of class difference when it came to you know like the clergy minus the common person you know like a lot of places for a long time it would be like oh if you want to get if you want to be taught you have to go to the jesuits and the jesuits will teach you or you know like the the church would found these schools for people so it is kind of tied to you know the people who can sit here and learn Latin or whatever we need at any given period of time those people can be priests other people no you can't you're not smart enough you know it's it's weird. Mm. And I don't I, I don't know how it worked in, yeah, you know, like 1968, yeah, 1967, but like he just seems mm. he's different than everybody else in a way that is very stark every time you see him. Yeah, like you can easily see um cuz like I mentioned like they say he's from the the capital city and he ends up going to this town to just manipulate these people. And um speaking um speaking of this um like like I've mentioned, like this, this like well, like how you mentioned the cinematography in this is just it's outstanding, and the framing you know, this is amazing. And so the director, he does a really good job on just showing who the real villain he is here. Like the church when it when it does come out on screen, like you can just feel its looming presence in these certain frames. Like you get these um. Like in that frame night that you mentioned with the priest standing in front of the church mm-hmm. with all the shadows around it. And then I believe in the Criterion supplements, there's an interview with Del Toro. And he mentioned, um, so um, like the golden age of Mexican cinema, um, a lot of films were, a lot of melodramas came out. And you can call them like chudo films because they were pretty cheap to, to, um, to film. 
So there was a lot of them coming out during this era. And Totoro says that this is one of them, like the first times that religion is framed as the villain. And damn, this was done like really fucking well. The way just how, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, because it's a, it's a power you can hold over other people. And that's kind mm-hmm. of what this film does, especially if it's already ingrained in your culture. Like it's more likely mm-hmm. that people who have grown up Catholic their whole lives are going to are going to be willing to listen to what the priest has to say and if the priest is kind of a bastard and he wants to whip people into frenzies and have them you know just murder people for no reason basically he's he could get away with it because Mm -hmm. you know it was worth it they were what was at one point after they've been captured there's the one guy and he's like dancing and he's saying what's he singing he's singing Christianity over um... communism yeah, yeah, he was yeah, like up for Christianity, down with communism or something. And he yeah. was like dancing around in front of these like bloodied like people who are like hanging on with like a string of life still. Yeah, just bloody, and, beaten yeah. and like burned and like covered in mud and yes. whatever else other shit they got dragged through on the way. And it's just like it's a mm-hmm. moment of levity of celebration that just feels so out of place. You know, like when you're watching the movie it's out of place, but like you can imagine if you were that guy mm-hmm. in that moment, you're like Hell yeah, we did it, guys. Mission accomplished. And so he's, and it's hard yeah. to understand it's, that um, mindset because once the crowd gets moving towards the the uh, house to get them, the crowd ceases to be a single person. They rarely focus on a single person mm-hmm. in the action. It's just a writhing mass of people. Man, dude, lynch mobs are fucking scary. Like just the whole mob mentality. Like this is a perfect example of just what it is. You know what I mean? Like it it goes out of out of control and there's just no way to really stop it and i do want to point out too that this film it doesn't really like it doesn't say that like all people living in rural towns are bad it's no. it's showing us how a man can manipulate and abuse his power and have control over these people and i i do think that's what this film it's its main point because like from the very beginning they tell us who lives who dies and just the outcome of this. So like this isn't about like the end point, but it's more just trying to show you like the power of one person's voice. Yeah, and I think to speak to that, like they do frequently throughout the sequence, that when they do show somebody as not part of the as someone, you know, as an individual from the mob, it's someone who's like, "Hey, maybe we don't do this." Like there are people who try to mm-hmm. stop it, but it's like it's just gotten so heated up so at I this had- point, you, they can't and I think what you're saying about it showing like how this stuff happens is it's very true because remember this movie started with like 15, 20 minutes of simply of them talking about, you know, like the hardships and realities of the town. Like it's letting you know mm-hmm. these people aren't just crazy. They didn't just, well, they maybe temporarily, you know, lost their minds a little bit, but like there's mm-hmm. a lot of things that led to this moment. It's not one singular thing. It's like they're not naturally evil. Yeah, no, they're just regular people. But because they had mm-hmm. somebody who could control them as well, you know, it's like cults. Like, we bring this up a lot in this episode, but it's like a cult. Mm-hmm. When you, It's like when you yeah. listen to the Jim Jones, you know, like the tapes of when they drank the the flavor aid. It's not Kool-Aid, I know. I'm going to get yelled at if I say it's Kool-Aid. Um, but like, <laughs> I almost said Kool-Aid. <laughs> I think Peter's not that, but... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's flavor aid, and I know someone's going to yell at me last podcast listeners out there are gonna just send me hate mail but um no like it's the same thing it's just all these are regular people but 
there's such an omnipresent control over their lives in the form of the priest that like everything's a bit skewed. They're starting to believe it. They're not, you know, they're a little bit isolated. All they know mm-hmm. basically is what the priest tells them or, you know, the priest lackeys. And when that happens, when you get isolated and told a bunch of stuff all the time, it's, it can be dangerous. You start to believe it. Yeah. 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 And it's, oh man. And, um, but before we wrap up, I, I do want to talk about like just the deaths in this, like, um, like you mentioned, it's very graphic and it's crazy because the film doesn't lead up to this point. Like it doesn't like, I didn't, I wasn't expecting like how you mentioned the fingers getting chopped off the, um, the owners, like his death, like I mentioned, like it was, it was pretty intense and it just caught me off guard. When, so the director showed the intensity with, with the graphicness of this film. Yeah, and it's graphic without ever feeling gratuitous. Like, I never felt like, oh, they're just really laying it in. No, a lot of times when something like actual, like gory or super violent happen, it'll show a close-up of it happening and then it cuts away almost immediately. Like, just to highlight the, you know, like the viciousness of the attack and then it's off it. You're aware it happened. You're aware of who got hit, who got hurt, but it doesn't linger. It's just... And think about it like this. It's mm-hmm. like a timeline. It's a very like specific demarcated moment in time. And then it moves on because it's happened. And that was a really effective way to do it. Cause if they yeah, had lingered on it, there's more yeah. going on. And like when they're being driven to the town and you know, you see them getting beat as they do, as they're going to the center of town. Like it all, that also doesn't ever feel like, Oh man, if you really want like to get into, or anything. yeah, no, if you really want to get into a religious symbolism with this movie, how about you know getting the shit kicked out of you while you're marched toward through the town towards your death, kind mm-hmm. of a Christ-like, am I right? Yeah, but I didn't even think of that. Yes. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> that is a very good point. Holy shit! <laughs> think about the scene we I talked about earlier, that. where they're saying like down with communism, up with Christianity. What what's he doing? He's holding himself up mm-hmm. with a beam. Kind of might look. I actually have to go back, but. Oh, I think pretty sure it's a cross beam that <laughs> yeah. he's holding himself up on. Not an actual cross, you know, but. Oh, yeah, there yeah. could be a lot more to this movie, but I'll have to oh, watch man. it again. It's the type of movie that's got. <laughs> there's so much happening in some of these frames. It's the type of movie you have to watch multiple times to catch everything. I'm sorry, but like. Yes. yes. I I couldn't catch everything the no, crowd no, was I up to in one sitting because it's just like, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. It totally makes sense. Like I said, like this is probably my fourth time and like there's still shit like happening. And I know like. I don't know. There's just something about this film that it just fuck, man. It just it does it. It does everything so fucking well. Like <laughs> I just can't get over it. And like I know it's kind of weird because it's just this isn't really like a happy film or anything. But it's just man, like I feel like you can learn a lot about this as a filmmaker because it it doesn't take your typical approach. And there's just so much you can grab theme wise, like thematically. Like I didn't even think about this whole. <laughs> Um, reenactment basically of the crucifixion. Like now, I want to go back and watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> you can do that after this episode. I knew this was gonna be like this as soon as I got on the call because you're like, tell me what you thought about Kanoa, and I'm like, oh man, he's excited. He's into yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he loves it. <laughs> yes, yes, this is probably the most excited I've been so far. Like, it's just because this is a film I've been wanting to talk about, but not many people have seen it. You know, so like, I can't really talk about it with anyone, and like. It's not the same just writing it out or whatever, you know, like. Yeah. And it's also one of those things where like when you, I hate to shout this place out, but like when you go on like the Criterion Reddit and people show their collections, you kind of get excited when you see movies in them that you don't see often. And Kanoa is kind of one of those movies. You don't see it all that often in people's collections. It's, they got like Breathless and 
Seven Samurai, and uh, I'll stop talking mm-hmm. shit about that subreddit now. But um, <laughs> no, like <laughs> it's a very good movie, and it deserves its spot in it that in, in the it Criterion Collection. And that, this was the first Criterion Collection film we've covered, and probably won't be the last. But and it, yeah, yeah, I have a few plans still. And, but um, yeah, I, I, I do want to say though, I'm thankful for Criterion because I probably wouldn't have found this film so early on in my like journey for latin american films so i'll, I'll, I'll give them that like they, they 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 have showed me a bunch of these films yeah but we're not going to spend all of our time patting them on the back because also there's other people that are good at releasing blu-rays and dvds now so exactly. we're not stuck doing this exactly. anymore but we are thankful for that so thank you <laughs> yes thank oh, you oh man so if you want to uh, sponsor us criterion go for it <laughs> yes please hire us to write booklets <laughs> something i don't know and then that'll, right you know, that'll never happen but no uh one last thing i wanted to make sure i covered this i know i know we're going long on this movie i know we're doing it i'm looking at the recording time right now. i'm so sorry I, people i'm so sorry i don't know <laughs> how much of this recording i have to cut out because it was uh, just us chatting at the front but the ending of this movie is about perfect because it, mm-hmm. it shows them the, the, the people in the hospital as they're recovering. It shows the guy trying to learn to live with, you know, like just two fingers on one hand because he lost the other ones to a machete mm-hmm. or something. And then it goes back to the town and they're just, it's like a festival, you know, just a festival. You yes. would see there's food, there's dancing, there's, um, there's like carnival games for the kids. And it cuts back to our guy who's been talking to us the whole time to help fill us in during a lot of the documentary sections. And he talks about how the government's coming down on the town, but not that bad, basically. And then he goes off, Mm -hmm. and then over a text scroll, it lets you know only two people really got punished for that whole thing. And none of the people involved with instigating Mm -hmm. it got charged with anything. And I think that's supposed to be a direct indictment. And also, to, to once again remind you, as they let you know that the people who didn't uh, people who instigated it didn't get charged. They show the town in a fully normal, rational setting where they're just having a good time. Like if nothing happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this was this was September 29th, I believe. So it's like 15 days after yes. um, everything that went down. And man, yeah. So I do want to talk about that final uh, just scene really quick. Um, it just it goes back to just showing how much power this priest has. He starts walking in the middle of the town, you know, with all his followers behind him, and it's just fuck so powerful like just the power that this one guy has that religion has that fuck man like <laughs> it's just really well done um did you have anything else yeah, that you I, to say I, about I this? okay well we're gonna I, take it i do have well oh. i have one more thing but i'm gonna I ha- i'm tying this in with in the glass cage so i'll bring that in later oh okay also by the way yeah. the next film is in a glass cage because we're here for a fun time this week so we're going yes, to take a quick break, make sure that our sanity is intact, and we are going to return with that <laughs> wonderful piece of cinema that I stupidly chose for this week. So we will be right back. Now that we've had a bunch of fun discussing Kanoa Shameful Memory, we're going to move on to more fun. We're going to be talking about In a Glass Cage. It is a 1986 Spanish psychological horror film. It is directed by Augusti Villaronga. And it has cinema- cinematography by uh, Jaume Pericola. And it is a doozy. So whenever you want to hit us with a, just a brief plot synopsis, it's not... You'll see, guys. You'll see. All right. Before I do begin the synopsis, I do need to give a trigger warning because there are accounts of suicide sexual abuse, child torture, and pedophilia. 
Klaus, a former Nazi doctor, practiced horrific experiments on children during World War II. After the war, he goes into exile in a remote village in Carolonia, where he continues to rape and torture young boys. He kills his latest victim with a blow to the head, taking photographs of the crime. Angelo, one of Klaus' victims, spies on him from a window and steals incriminating writing and photographs of a doctor's crimes. Klaus tries to commit suicide by jumping from a tower. He survives, but he is left paralyzed and unable to breathe on his own, confined permanently in an iron lung to survive. Some years later, Klaus is being taken care of by his wife, Grisilda, and their younger daughter, Reina, in a large, gloomy house in the, in the country. Grisilda is unhappy in Spain and overwhelmed by the task of looking after her husband, secretly wishing he would just die. Angelo appears, offering his services as a nurse to help take care of Klaus. Grisilda takes an instant dislike towards An Angelo and does not want to hire him, but Klaus insists that he should stay. In reality, Angelo has no actual nursing skills, which Gris Grisilda soon discovers. But even when Klaus refers to get rid of him, Angelo's true aim is to not only take revenge out on Klaus, but to ultimately take his place as a torturer. Angela reads Klaus's passages from the diaries he stole in which the doctor describes in detail how he tortures his victims. Recreating what Klaus did to him, Angela strips and masturbates in front of Klaus. He then calls Grisilda. She tries to run away, but he kills her by hanging her from the rails of the second floor. The next day, Angelo, Angelo fires the housekeeper, taking over the house with Reina's help. Reina is not disturbed by her mother's absence as Grisilda was abusive towards her. Reina feels far more comfortable under Angelo's care. Angelo continues with the doctor's experiments, bringing young boys to Klaus in his iron lung. Angelo lures a child to the house and ties him to a chair. In front of Klaus, Angelo kills a boy by injecting him through the heart with a needle filled with gasoline. He brings in another boy, forcing him to sing and cutting him by the throat. Fearing that Angelo will um, kill him and Reina, Klaus tells his daughter to run away near the village with a message asking for help. Angelo discovers Reina while she is trying to escape and brings her back to his house. He dominates her, assumes a pervasive, violent parental role. Finally, Angelo removes Klaus from his iron lung and lets him die of asphyxiation while emulating the scene of his own abuse. In Reina's presence, once Klaus is dead, Angelo takes his identity, getting into the artificial lung and making Reina take his. So this was uh, your pick, John. So lead the way. Oh, I'm going to justify this pick first. When you told me we were going to be watching Kanoa, I wanted to watch something else that was like uh, had ties to real events. Not in the way Kanoa does. It's not, you know, like a, a reenactment or anything like that. But I wanted to be about abuses of power, basically. And this movie is maybe one of the most disturbing films like that. And it's not because it's the the torturer who's in power for the film, it's because one of his victims comes back and starts abusing that power and taking control of this entire household and this entire family. And this is, if you're listening to this and you by the end of it, you decide you want to watch this, no, this is a very difficult film to watch. It is unrelentingly bleak from start to finish. You, you open on this man torturing and killing a child basically and from that moment this movie never lets up and you're just as trapped as uh klaus is for the entirety of the film with what's happening and we'll get into some of the ways he starts to reflect that uh <sighs> angelo starts to reflect klaus's personality and history but uh this is almost a suffocating experience wouldn't you say oh it's definitely claustrophobic it's um yeah i mean the entirety of the majority of this film is filmed in this household and like this house is pretty big but yet it still felt extremely claustrophobic it was um really well done i have to i have to say that like it's really well done it's um yeah like it's <laughs> like I, i'm honestly at a loss like i watched this yesterday and i'm just i'm still trying to process a lot what i watched because there's easily a lot going on in here yeah so i do want to start off by i checked that 
this is the director's feature debut like wow this i haven't seen any of his other work but wow like (laughs) he knew exactly what he wanted and he like this director just has great control over the story and like his direction it's it's i mean it's like well-crafted film you know yeah from start to finish um before we get into like some of the themes and the plot and stuff like that i i want to talk about Mm -hmm. that stuff the pacing is immaculate the cinematography is Mm -hmm. very very good this whole film is probably one of the coldest feeling movies i've seen it feels it feels distanced from what's happening Mm -hmm. almost in a clinical way like in that way, it kind of reminds me of another movie that's very clinical and detached, even though it's horrifying. Like, it reminds me of, like, Pasolini's Salo in that aspect, where, like, these awful mm-hmm. things are happening and you're watching them, but you still feel detached from it, which is mm-hmm. a very uncomfortable way to feel for basically two hours straight. And yeah. I think yeah. they did a great job, and the performances are pitch perfect, I'd say. Klaus... Yeah, even though he almost never speaks or cannot speak much, but like his acting's perfect. Angelo is perfect. Rena is perfect mm-hmm. as well. Like she plays childhood innocence incredibly well throughout this entire film, and that's you know like what she yes. represents basically. She is like Angelo's already hurting, and he's already changing from someone who's hurt to someone who's going to hurt other people like almost with this mm-hmm. weird borderline obsession. And this film just like, it balances all these things well, because if this film felt more exploitative or if it felt like it was just, you know, like trying to be edgy, which this movie never does it like, like Kanoa, it feels like mm-hmm. an art house take on extreme horror almost. Mm-hmm. And it is a, it's yeah, a doozy. I, I totally believe that. And yeah. I, I really, I um, really do before, admire yeah, like, this film though. Like I think Coming out of the gate with this as your directorial debut, that takes a lot of confidence, I'll say. Oh, yes. Yes. To go for a story like this, intense. And just, um, it's, it's, it, it's honestly something like, I don't know, like, he, <laughs> it's, uh, like I said, I'm still trying to process this stuff because it's, it's um, very bleak. Um, the color palette in this, it's very blue, very gray very moody and and just like i said this director he has a really good hold of what he was trying to do and like i, I kind of want to bring up his camera work like he does a great job like there's certain instances where like he moves the camera a lot with the action that's on screen and it's just that was really cool to see and just seeing he has a great use of shadows in this oh, like yeah. i instantly saw that like from the very beginning i was like wow like he's really playing with the shadows like if this was a black and white film which makes sense because i mean the film was very blue and very gray you know and he really um takes advantage of the darkness around him and just, just like Kanoa, like they take advantage of it like, like how you mentioned yeah, and to add on to that, like the shadows are great, the color palettes, you know, consistent across the whole thing. And you mentioned earlier this the house. The house is huge, and it seems like it was opulent mm-hmm. at one point, but it isn't anymore. It's starting to break down and fall into disrepair, you know, kind of like Klaus. And I think one of the most striking mm-hmm. images in this movie is once Klaus is in the iron lung, he's in a huge, fancy room 
with a ton of space and like a vaulted ceiling. But there's just an iron lung sitting dead center in the middle of this room. The room can be as big yeah, as it wants to be, move. but he's still in this small, tiny area. And that's how, honestly, it feels to watch this movie. There's just all this space and there's all this yeah. you know, ability to create interesting framings. But at the end of the day, you're still stuck right there, right in the center. You can only move so far. And like, I think they use the house very well. Like when Angelo starts wearing basically SS uniforms and walking around the house and he like yeah. chicken wires up the center of the staircase and the birds get trapped in it. And you're just like, as it goes on, the house gets more and more and more claustrophobic as he starts to enact these changes as him and Reina are basically like living out this almost like childish fantasy of what it means to be adults. Oh man. Mm -hmm. It's, it's yeah, rough. Like, um, yeah, totally. I'm going to say that um, a lot. I mean, you kind of have to. Like, this is just such a rough film. Um, so, like, a lot of this film deals a lot with transformations. And I feel like one of the biggest ones that is easily noticeable is the transformation in the house, like you mentioned. It, um, it really feels like a concentration cap by the end of it, you know? Just the way how, like you mentioned, the chicken wire, there's, um, like... Um, little fires here and there the like birds feathers and just the way how it's shot you know what i mean like it like you see him walking on like on the second floor but it's behind the wire so it feels like like you're like trapped and you're just watching it feels like you're within this this camp with these guys and angelo is um the one in charge you know what i mean obviously it's not a coincidence that it starts to look like a concentration camp at a certain point mm -hmm. because you exactly. know klaus's history and also at the same mm -hmm. time you realize that like it starts out feeling like angelo is trying to kind of free himself by doing these things but as he like internalizes everything and like the house starts to crumble more and more like you realize he's actually like working himself back into this tight corner where this is the only place he can be like mm -hmm. It's such a strange way to deal with this sort of topic that they've chosen to pursue, but at the same time, it's very effective in the yeah. way that it does it. Because Angelo starts out, you know, like you see him, he, he looks like he has a secret, and you know, it doesn't take long for him to get get that out. But when mm -hmm. he starts to feel in control, it almost starts to feel like he's smaller than he was before. Like as he gains more control and more, yeah. like bodies start to pile up, like he's losing more of himself and becoming more like Klaus. And it's almost like it completely changes the trajectory of the film at that point, because, you know, you're like, Oh, he's just going to torture this dude and make his life hell because he made his life hell. But no, like his way of processing his trauma turns out to be so different than what you initially expected to be. And I think playing mm -hmm. with that and like the way that trauma affects people is something that the film does incredibly well. And you even see it with Klaus, like who tries to do the right thing a couple times. He's a complete fucking scum, fuck, evil motherfucker. But he, yes. because he's in this situation, he tries to get Reyna out. And he honestly does try to save Griselda, who hates him. And I think Griselda's the only person you don't see mm -hmm. much uh, transformation with over the course of the film. She only transforms mm -hmm. from being alive to being dead, probably. Bad joke, sorry. But, um,. <laughs> You do yeah. get to see like her levels of like <laughs> hatred and dislike of her husband. Like when she goes down to the basement and she cuts the circuit breaker so that he can't breathe 
And she just sits down there for a while thinking yeah, about what it's going to be like if he dies. And you're just like, man, there's a lot of, there's a lot of scenes like that where you'll just see a character um, do something and the camera just watches them do it. Basically. I know that sounds stupid, but like you watch mm-hmm. the emotions and the ideas play out over there. No, no, it, it makes sense. It lingers on them. Like thinking, um, you actually mentioned something right now that I just thought of right now um, about the whole trauma. I'm going to bring this back to the wolf house again. This reminds me a lot of Maria. You know, like the same thing happened to her where like she tries to flee her trauma, but she ends up like cycling back and doing the exact same thing. And that's exactly what happens to Angelo. You know, he tries to um, like get his revenge, but in the process, he's becoming what happened to him. And it's, it's, it's just done really well. And you just really see it. And like the film really does take its time to show it. I appreciate this, you know what I mean? Like, especially for, a, like, again, a, a feature debut, like, the, this director really wanted to just have a sit with his characters, you know what I mean? It's just really good character study in that way. And because it's so... The pacing is slower, like, that is something you're going to have to reckon with when you watch this movie. You're going to be with it for a while, and it takes its time. But it almost feels like you're... It gives you the feeling that you're there, and it allows the character portraits to really get time to breathe it makes everything feel lived in. The house feels lived in, even as it's starting to fall apart. Like these feel like real people. Mm-hmm. And then a way that's similar to how it is in Kanoa, except, you know, Kanoa goes for more of documentary style realism. And this goes into more like characters, characterization style realism of like all these people are damaged, except for the only person who's not is Raina. Cause she seems to have escaped from, you know, like her father's, what he does, we'll say, and uh, she doesn't like her mother because her mother is strict, basically. But other than that, Raina just seems mm-hmm. she's a normal child while all this is happening until you know the end when she can't yeah. be a normal until child very anymore. End, yeah. Con- until she's completely confronted by everything, like the reality of the world around her. Basically, yeah. it's the complete loss of her innocence and basically a single moment. And. It's very effective. This movie has a lot to say about trauma, innocence, children. And I think something that I found interesting is weird to talk about like how Angelo starts to turn into him. It's like he starts by trying to escape his trauma. And then it turns out for him, the only escape is to go right Mm -hmm. back into it. And that's really depressing, honestly. Like he, it's tragic. Like he does awful yeah, things, but just, his life is just a full on tragedy that he almost has no control over. And, you know, I, I do think that's what this film is trying to say a lot is it's this cycle of violence. Really? It, it just, it keeps on happening. Like no matter the generation, like these violent acts keep on repeating itself. And um, this is actually what I wanted to um, connect with Kanoa. So during this whole lynch mob in Kanoa, there's a scene where I believe it's a, a younger guy. He's just beating on this body with the machete. Like, the guy's dead, and you just see him, like, the camera stays on this for about 10, 20 seconds. This guy, like, younger kid, he's just beating the shit out of this corpse. And that's essentially what this film shows, too, is we see three different generations all repeating itself. Like, it's just, um, like I said, it's the cycle of violence, and it's just really hard to break it. Yeah, and... um. A note before we get into like the nitty gritty of some of the the bat the really like disturbing things that happen in this film. The way this film chooses to shoot its violence is remarkably effective. It's also similar to Kanoa, where you don't really see 
it's all done in severe close-up basically like the point where he mm. he fills that boy's heart with gasoline from a needle like it just zooms in on the point of insertion yeah. basically and then it just once it shows mm-hmm. the act of violence it pulls back to show the entirety of it because then it pulls back to show a full body shot of this kid coughing and spasming as you know the he dies and- yeah, and it happens it's... when he cuts the other kid's throat when he's singing too. Luckily, like, because during these sequences, is it, once again, there's content warnings here because there's there's tough subject matter to be covered here. But like before he starts like doing the this other stuff to the kids, I don't it he I don't think he rapes any of the children, but I do know you know like he molests them while he's talking to Klaus about mm. the things he's read in his journal or reading passages from it. But it, do, it never shows that, and I'm very grateful mm-hmm. for it. But at the same time, the sounds from those scenes will yes. haunt my waking moments for the next week or so. Oh, my God. And those mm-hmm. se- those scenes are yeah. just unbearable completely. But I, I did want you guys to know that, like, if you're going to watch this, you won't see those per se. You may see some inappropriate touching, but it, it never gets too, like, lurid or exploitative that it goes too goes too far like mm-hmm. in a visual sense in a story sense and in a thematic sense maybe this film does go too far but visually i don't think it does but it's still a lot to deal with and i wanted to warn people and let them know yeah God. um just for like a lack of a better term i want to say this film is very tame viewing wise like it can easily go into this extremely shocking imagery but luckily it doesn't happen you know what I mean? And instead we just get just this like slow burn, like visceral experience, like of what's happening again. I'm like very glad, you know, we don't, we don't see any other stuff, but you know, what's happening, you know, what happened. And I think that's what made me very uncomfortable is like a lot of this stuff. What like what happens is um, a lot of it is told through Angela reading the diaries. So it's really just audio, you know? And I think, that's just what got me like very disturbed was just hearing what happened it's almost and worse that way <laughs> that's yeah and that's what got to me you know what i mean like just hearing about it yeah like, and, and and think about this dear listener while a lot of this is happening while he's reading these diaries and doing these things it will just show a close-up of klaus's face as he reacts to it not speaking mm-hmm. just the expressions on his face maybe a moment of you know like grief maybe a moment of shame like it really plays into diving back into this man's memories like literally in front of him basically while he works through them while he's forced to confront what he actually is it's it's very well it's important to point out too like uh yes very well made and like i feel like the director is trying to give us some sort of empathy for him but then you remember what a piece of shit he was and like oh man just the complexity of this it's it's like the film it, wants you to feel sorry for Klaus at times and f- like be exactly. mad at Angelo, but you know that's not how it should be, and it's upsetting. Yes, exactly, and like it just shows like the complexity of humanity. You know, like it's just it's not just black and white. And but in the end, like Klaus is still a piece of shit. Like I I, I want to put that put that out there. Like he is just the lowest fucking like scum. You know, we wanted to be known that the, the Descent Horror just Podcast sure. does not condone Klaus. <laughs> he sucks fuck him but the film starts off with his attempted suicide you know what i mean so you know he feels bad or at least feels something for what he did and now he's confronted of um 
having to re like re revisit what he did during World War II. I will say this about Klaus act Klaus's actor though. Every single time someone cut the power or opened up his iron lung, his ability to appear oh, that he could not God. breathe, that acting is horrific and like incredible. Like the way he writhes. Yes, very well done. And like gasps, gasping and his eyes are like popping, oh and you're like, "Oh Jesus!" Like you, you imagine what it would yeah. be like to be in that situation, and and let me tell you, wouldn't want it. Mm-mm, I can take a firm stance on that. I don't want that to happen to me. <laughs> but oh, man. you're right. This Jeez. film is incredibly morally complex. Like it's mm-hmm. it's the first time I watched this. I think I thought about it for maybe like a week afterwards before I decided whether I even actually mm-hmm. liked the movie or not, because it's a lot no, to chew sense. on. And Kanoa is similar, but I think mm-hmm. it's more immediately easy to watch. I'd say it's not even an easy film to watch is like, this isn't saying Kanoa is easy to watch. This is saying in relation to in a glass cage, mm-hmm. Kanoa is easier to sit down and come to grips with, you know, like, yes. And it, mm-hmm. and uh, in a glass cage feels also kind of more abstract, whereas Kanoa is immediate. And in the same way, Kanoa is immediately yes, about yes. an actual event. And, uh, in a glass cage is abstractly about things that have happened. I don't know if abstractly is a word. I hope it is. I think it is. <laughs> don't yell at me, but no, but we'll make it work today. <laughs> yeah. It's good enough. It's the best <laughs> I got at the moment, but yeah, no, it's in abstract about like European trauma emanating out of world war two. Whereas Kanoa mm-hmm. is like literally about an actual event that happened. And in a way like it, it also works with that. And I, I have to ask you something because this is something that the first time I watched it, I didn't know how to take it. I, I have a idea of how I feel about it now, but I didn't know how to take it when the film ends and it pulls out and they're in a snow globe. What did you think? You know what? I, I don't know what he was trying to say there. Like I, I saw that and I was like, Hmm, like, cause I'm trying to think. So snow globes are what like capture this, like a they're moment. supposed to capture this supposedly. Yeah. Like a beautiful moment, but it doesn't, you know what no. I mean? Like it ends on this final frame is Reina essentially reenacting what Angelo did the very first time, which is like opening up the iron lung and like laying on him. And, and I think it just, it speaks back to that theme where it's just like, this is never going to end the cycle is just repeating itself. And, and I think like that was just the director's main way of showing like, you can't escape it. Yeah. And it's, we're doomed to repeat ourselves. Yeah. You know what the, uh, well, uh, to keep in mind for, because I don't think we really discussed it at the end of the movie, the, they, they kill Klaus. Uh, he gets in the iron lung and pretends oh. to, that he can't breathe. And Raina becomes Angelo basically. So at the end, mm-hmm. she like opens it up and she straddles him. No, yeah. no, she sits on top of it, doesn't she? No, she gets on top of him and then no, closes she, she sits it. on top of the iron lung. Yeah, yeah, like she straddles the iron lung and then it like zooms out and you're in a mm-hmm. snow globe. It made me think that this is intended to almost be, and we'll we'll return to something that we've discussed before, fairy tale like. Mm. Okay, it adds a, it adds a different layer to it to let it know that mm-hmm. it is fake but it's like a it's like a parable or a fairy tale and mm-hmm. it's meant to fi- you're meant to find truth in the moments but you know it's a capturing of a moment in time mm-hmm. in history meant to show without you know like being explicit about actual events it's supposed to be 
that basically it gives it that feeling of like oh finally i'm talking around my point here and i'm trying to fix that but no it f- makes it feel <laughs> fantasy like almost it's it's strange the way it affects the mm-hmm. rest of the film cuz if you go back and watch it again and you have that in mind you start to think about that ending mm-hmm. and what it means more because the first time you watch it, you just go, okay, weird way to end the movie. Oh, Thanks, Augusti Villaronga. You know what I mean? But think about it. It's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, it's like a it's like a campfire story. It's like this, the sort of thing you tell people to make sure that they don't do something wrong. Like, I don't know. It's just, I wish, I want, I'd love to talk to the director to figure out exactly what it means, honestly. But that's my take on it. Is it supposed to almost like, yeah. Oof, man, I wish. to like mythologize everything that happened before it turn Mm -hmm. it into a story instead of a film. You know what I mean? Like, like a passed down story instead of like, it's just a film. Mm -hmm. That's what it makes me feel. Like there's just more to it than what you witness basically. Kind of, but I I feel like it's supposed to make the actions feel um, bigger, I guess. It's a weird ending and I'm still talking my way through this as we record this. Yeah. I'm (laughs) No, no, yeah, I remember I saw, I saw it too, and I was, <laughs> so I told you, like, when I watched this, um, it was early in the morning, and I kind of just had to go to sleep afterwards, I was like, yeah, this was tough, like, everything was kind of just coming back to me, like, just, I couldn't shake this film off me, you know, Yeah. and I just, it makes sense, it, putting it that way, where this is all just, like, mythology, like, some myth, yeah. in some case, I guess, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's what I think, but the... it, it does require multiple viewings too, but I don't know if I'm gonna watch it anytime soon. <laughs> well, also, uh, it could be, it could be playing on the title of the film. Uh, Snow globe is also technically a glass cage. The iron lung is a glass cage. You know, mm-hmm. like Actually, maybe, yeah, maybe they're too, you know, if they had, if it had pulled out and they were all in a giant iron lung, that might have been a bit too on the nose. Maybe that's what mm. it's about. Like it pulls out to let you know, oh, they're all stuck in this cycle, like you mentioned. They're all trapped mm. here. So that could be it as well, which is actually a point you made. Which you know is what? Good. I think I have something that will just like concrete this. So Tras el, al Cristal, the literal translation is behind the crystal. Um, so like he told us from the very beginning, you know what I mean? Like what this is. And <laughs> so it's behind the crystal. Cause I remember seeing that too. I was like behind the crystal. Like in a glass cage, it makes a little more sense. Like subject matter wise. Yeah. But once you bring this up, I was like, okay, this makes sense now, behind the crystal, like, that's essentially what this is, like, the snow globe, like, the crystal, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, man, there's... If you talk about a film <laughs> enough, you can figure things out that you weren't even thinking about when you started talking about it. <laughs> Honestly. Exactly. That's <laughs> half of what we do here. Uh, or the glass <laughs> cage could be the lens thoughts. of the camera. No, I don't think that's true, but... um. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. I've been writing papers for like a week and a half, and I'm brain dead. So I'm doing my best. Oh, there was something else I wanted to say, but I don't know what it is anymore. I'm just thinking about this movie again, and it's like bumming me out. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I totally get it. Um, I do want to bring up. So you know how I mentioned the use of shadows mm-hmm. that um, in Giallo style kill with um Griselda. Yeah, very much so. That was. And that came out of fucking nowhere too. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. Like seeing the, like Griselda's shadow on the wall, like like holding the knife and stuff. Like that kind of like, I wouldn't say it threw me out of the film, but I, I, I was like, I wasn't expecting that. So I was like, oh, wow. Like, okay, cool. Like we're going here. 
There was only one death like that, but yeah, that's that probably the most horror like moment of the entire film. Like, mm-hmm. I, I would say like at least standard, this, like, yeah, standard horror, you know, like, like you said, it's yes. very shallow, like, it's very slasher, like, it's almost feels mm-hmm. out of place, almost like Griselda yeah. herself like, up feels until, out of like, place and she has to be removed, yeah, exactly. And like, I actually want to talk about her too. Um, the actor's name is Mar- Marissa Paredes, I believe. Mm-hmm. And do you know where else she's from? Like, have you seen her before that you can remember? Uh, personally, she looked very familiar, but I cannot. Yeah, she's she's the lady oh. um, from The Devil's Backbone. Yeah, I just looked it up. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, and... yeah. Oh, she's also okay. in the skin right. I live in. Oh, oh, is she? Yeah, I'm uh, Oh, we're gonna have to watch that yeah, yeah, this yeah. at some point. <laughs> but yes, yeah, yes, I didn't I, realize I she was the lady from The Devil's Backbone, and now I have to go watch The Devil's Backbone again. Yeah, yes, you do because check this out. You're about to fuck. So me up. throughout The Devil's, nah, it's it's just a little connection that I found. Okay. Um, so in Devil's Backbone, her like one of her main attires is this red dress, I believe. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, and remember during Marissa, she actually wears a lot of red in this film as well. Yes. And her final death, um, like well, like during her death, doesn't he throw this like red like curtain on top of her? Yes. So there's like a nice little connection there. And then just there's certain ways the way Angelo dresses, he dresses a lot like Santi, which is the villain in The Devil's Backbone, oh. with his like um <laughs> with his plain um button up with his muscle shirt under and like khaki not khakis but like dress pants like. Yeah, so uh, there was a nice little connection that I saw there. And again, so like, think about it. This film is talking about just the horrific shit that happened to these kids in World War II. And The Devil's Backbone is about the horrific shit that happens to kids in the Spanish Civil War. And and actually, you want to pull it even further. Um, Klaus is actually benefiting from the Spanish Civil War and fascism in Spain because he flees to Catalonia after World War II. Because he knows Franco will cover for him, basically. Mm-hmm. So this is actually occurring, yeah, like in a similar time period, probably to when you know those other things would have occurred. Like, it's all yeah. connected. And like, and exactly. And Quick, someone call Guillermo del Toro and ask him what he thinks of in a glass cage. Get him on this. <laughs> Get him on the phone. Like, I know for a fact he's seen this. You know what I mean? Like, there, there's no doubt about it. Like, so I'm pretty sure like these connections aren't coincidences. Coincidences. You know, yeah. It just because like he uses the exact same person. He uses the red with her. You know what I mean? Like, and we're talking about like one of my personal favorite themes is just like the forgotten children in like these worlds. You know what I mean? And like just the shit that happens to them. And it's just this is all connected, like you said. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just uh well, in a glass cage is a Spanish film. You know, from Spain, and. Exactly. Uh, Spanish and Mexican cinema can sometimes feed each other in ways that are interesting mm-hmm. in a way that is like weirdly, of course, tied to colonialism and whatnot, but like they can comment mm-hmm. on each other almost basically. And yeah, so like, not like they're completely influenced, but like, I mean, that's why I like sticking into Latin American films as well as Spanish films. Cause there's just a lot of overlaps between both of them. Yeah. And a uh, fun fact about that mm-hmm. actress as well. She did not act in a ton of movies. So that makes me believe see what even I mean? less like, that so it's a like, coincidence. Yeah, like Del Toro, he knows what he's doing. Like, yeah, I have, that this is all I have evidence wise. But <laughs> I'm I'm also about 100 percent positive that uh, Almodovar knew exactly what he was doing as well. Because mm-hmm. this seems like a movie that Almodovar would like. 
like is oh, a strong totally. word. Totally. Appreciate. We'll say that. Like, I wouldn't <laughs> say I like this movie, but I'm glad it exists, mm-hmm. I guess. Yes. And I am really glad that you picked it because like they both work off each other really well. And they're both about abuses of power, like you said. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a rough week for the I mean, podcast. And if you go to IMDb, um, Marisa Paredes is in her red dress. Oh. So, there you go. We're stuck here. We're trapped now. We're in a snow globe. It's yep. all repeating. Exactly. Zoom out, zoom out. I'm going to start playing a game where I, I see how long it takes before we bring up Guillermo del Toro on each episode. Because I'm pretty sure we have on every <laughs> single one him twice now. today. Yeah, I think we brought him up on every episode so far. I don't know why. Well, we I, both really like Guillermo del Toro. Mm-hmm. We that's how one of the original ways we bonded was talking about like Devil's Backbone and shit. So that's probably yeah, it. Exactly. I, I think you're the one that, that told me to watch it. You're like, have you watched it? It's like, no, nah, dude, I haven't seen it yet. And lo and behold, here we are. Yeah, it's a great film. Probably won't be discussed on this podcast because um, it has a lot more uh, eyes on it than a lot of these other ones. Yeah. Unless you want it, um, you, so the listener, ask us for it. I'll talk about that movie for six I mean, hours. If you guys really want us to bring it up, we'll see what's up. How You know how I just mentioned about um, the whole children aspect of this? Um, there's this, like I, don't, I guess, throwaway line in Klaus's diaries where he views the children just like as endless copies, and he just compares them to animals. And, man, that, that really stuck out to me. Like, I don't know. I, I guess it's just a way for him to, like, kind of justify killing all these like i don't even know how many he, i don't think they ever say how many he's killed but it's just a way for him to justify like yeah and if he was like a if he was a uh concentration camp doctor like he saw thousands of people of die and i'm sure all the faces started to blur mm-hmm. at the point and like it's also interesting yeah. to think that he thinks of specifically children are all copies it's like you're not a real person it's like he feels like you're not a real person until you're a full-grown adult. And that's an mm. interesting way to think about it. Like, when they're kids, oh, they're all the same. They're all just children. But, you know, like, he never says stuff like that about the full-grown people in the film. Or, like, even really seems all that aggressive yeah. towards them, honestly. Yeah, and that could be why, like, he was so going after the children. Like, once he was here, in, I'm assuming he was already here in Spain once with the first scene of the film. Yes, when he tried to commit suicide and all that, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, he was still doing that shit here, and I'm assuming that's why he was still sticking with them. Yes, probably. Um, well, it implies that he's he's just straight up a pedophile. Like, that's just what he... He's a, he's, yeah, he's a sadist yeah. pedophile. That's it. That's what he likes, so that's what he does. That he just got put in this position of power. Yeah, and he was able to abuse it, and he continues to abuse it until he completely loses the ability to do anything. And then that vacuum mm-hmm. is created and someone's got to step in and lo and behold, Angelo steps through the door. Oh, man. Like, do you... Th- um, I, Klaus had no idea who Angelo was? I think he did. Or what do you think? Because, like, he wanted him to stay. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think, he, I I like... think he knew exactly who he was and that's why he didn't want his wife to uh, fire him. That's the vibe mm-hmm. I get. It never... The film never explicitly tells you, basically. It's something that yeah. you have to kind of suss out as you watch it. And that's something I appreciate is nobody sits mm-hmm. down and just, like, gives a grand explanation of everything like the things happen and you try to figure out why these people are doing these things. And like, I'm pretty sure he did know him and that's why he didn't want him to be sent away because he was maybe concerned if he sends him away, he's going to get arrested or something. I don't know. But Mm -hmm. yeah, that would make a lot of sense. Cause like it, 
again this goes back to um to his acting like for a second like you can kind of see um like a quick like recognition in his face like oh okay and that's why he didn't want him to leave in yeah like it yeah. It, it, it's, it speaks to his performance because it's like that moment of recognition but it's like quickly smashed down because he doesn't want anyone else to see it yes mm-hmm. it was like a, just for a brief second like if you look away you would you could easily miss it yeah this is this is a movie that you absolutely have to pay attention to the entirety of it like i know oh, there's films we like that we can just like fuck off and do whatever while we're watching it and still enjoy the film but like this is one that like a lot of the story and character is told in like facial movements and like small moments mm-hmm. so like you have to like lock eyes on this one mm-hmm. or like even how you mentioned too like just the the sound production in this like it sticks with you <laughs> the omnipresent sound of the iron lung mm-hmm. the iron lung forever. oh my god yes every time someone would enter the room and it's just like it's the consistent rhythm that fuck man like it, it really gets to you it yeah. really starts to get to you and the sound just like the iron lung the sound dominates the room just like the iron lung itself dominates the room by being the only thing in it mm-hmm. but there's a small broken man yeah. inside of it and it's actually something i wanted to bring up during uh kanoa that i didn't that is similar um when they're beating and uh dragging the people through town there's the there's the sound of insects in the background because i watched it with headphones on and it's constant mm-hmm. and it's just going cause it's just nighttime sounds in the countryside, you know, but it's loud. Yeah. And it reminded me of like that, uh, mm-hmm. audio motif of like what was happening as well as like the sound of the, uh, iron lung in this one. Like it was just similar. Like a lot of times when things, bad things were going to happen, you would hear, you know, of course the iron lung cause he's there or the sound of crickets mm-hmm. or not crickets. I think it was crickets actually, but like the sounds of insects at night, you know, like, it just lets you know yeah. how isolated it is. Yeah. Just like uh, the sound of the iron lung lets you know how trapped yeah. he is. Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, like it, it, like it just. It, I think it, it is a good way to show the isolation, like like how you mentioned, and it, it's just very like. I think it's also used as, just to remind you, just what the hell is transpiring on screen. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I'm trying to say trying to say something, but I think it might be very stupid, so I'm just gonna stick it to say it to myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, why don't you say it? I've been doing it all day. Just thinking like this iron lung is like very like it's artificial, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But like everything else is very organic. I know there's something there, but I can't like put my words on it. <laughs> I gotcha. He's almost kept alive by fate in a way. Like mm-hmm. I'm I'm sure he didn't want to live like this. Oh man, what if his, no, yeah. what if his wife yeah. forced them to save him and keep him in this class long? I don't think they ever really touch on that. But, they really don't like they really don't say why she keeps on because i mean she could easily kill him and like i'm sure no one would even notice or care really he would just be gone and that'd be fine the world would probably be a better place mm-hmm. but fuck man yeah that's um in so the, these films put me in a tough spot because it's something like i would really like to recommend but it's obviously not for everyone to see you know yes if you like well made like, albeit very disturbing and distressing and you can handle the things we've given trigger warnings for and you're interested then watch the movie if any one of these things has made mm-hmm. you not want to watch the movie maybe don't watch the movie i don't think either of us are ever going to say hey you didn't watch this movie so that's bad and you're bad no that's not what we do here like you watch what you like and what you can tolerate and what you can take and whatever your mm-hmm. taste is that's cool man we can talk about whatever you're whatever you're interested in that's awesome but there is the caveat with stuff like this where 
probably the audience for In a Glass Cage and Kanoa are probably smaller than average, the people who will watch it. And, you know, once again, I don't want to use the word enjoy here. We'll say appreciate because I don't think there's any enjoyment to appreciate, be had. Yeah. Definitely appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm pretty good. I mean, as I got... far as I know, I think the next episode is going to be a little more... At least the next episode is going to be a little more chill. Yeah, yeah. I get to pick the first movie for the next episode, so I'm going to make sure it's more chill because I'm not doing this again. When I when I was like halfway through In a Glass Cage last night, I was like, why the fuck did I decide that I wanted to do this for an episode? Because I got to watch this again, and this movie hurts me. Again, like it's, I do think this is a film that does require multiple viewings. It's just those viewings might be fairly sparse. So Yeah, I don't like uh, watch it two yeah. days in a row probably. I don't. Unless, yeah. unless you're you want to, and then do that. I'm not judging. You watch what you want, and that's totally cool with us too. <laughs> Once again, <laughs> um, something I've thought of is maybe at some point, maybe after this season's over or something, maybe we should have like an episode where we'll take a vote, and then like the audience can pick something for us to watch, and then we can come up with stuff to bounce off that. That's just an idea for spitballing. We no, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, honestly, that's what I was trying to think too. What we can do for season finale, like a big thing, but yeah. We'll and then it could up. be, oh, um, uh, oh, yeah, you, we could do it as like three movies, like audience picks a movie yeah. and then we have to bounce off it. That could be fun. Okay. That, yeah. That, that's a pretty cool idea. But until the season finale, you know, um, we'll, we'll get there. We'll see what's up. So yeah. you listeners, if you guys have any ideas, let us know. Be thinking we'll about it. <laughs> but until then, this concludes this episode. If you're listening on Apple podcast, please rate and subscribe. It really helps us out. And please share it with a friend. And just for a reminder, you can find me on social media at Mikey Peralta Jr. And you can find John on Twitter at AstroSlop. And we do have an email where you can send us what you got at thedescentpodcast at gmail.com. So please hit us up online so we can continue these conversations. Thank you for descending into these films from around the world. Congratulations if you made it through this episode completely. Go get yourself an ice cream and have a great day. <laughs>